Good morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you make your word and your heart clear to us this morning as we open your word? Lord, I pray this morning that those of us who are following you would be encouraged by what we hear this morning, that we would be inspired by your word and by your example as we hear from you. And Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning who don't know you as Lord and Savior. And I pray this morning that they would get a glimpse of what you're like, that you might continue to draw them to yourself, that they might know the joy of belonging to you. So we pray these things as we worship you now by hearing from your word, and we ask that you would speak clearly in your name. Amen. Well, thank you for being here this morning. I'm glad that you're here this morning. I'm glad that I'm here. As Joe said, I wasn't planning on mentioning, but uh, this morning's sermon is brought to you by DayQuil. So that's our (laughs) corporate sponsor this morning. So if this makes no sense, that's going to be my excuse. It just so happens we're not in the easiest passage, and we've taken a big chunk of it this morning, so there's a lot for us to talk about. But we've been, we are continuing this morning our series in 1 Peter, which we've entitled Hope in a Hostile World. The book of 1 Peter written to a bunch of believers who are spread out all over the place and are suffering because they've identified themselves with Jesus. And Peter is writing to them saying, you should be encouraged. You should live with hope, even though what you're going through is difficult right now. And I don't know what you're going through right now, but we can hear this and think, yeah, of course, we have hope in Jesus even though life is hard. But depending on what you're going through in your life, you can hear this differently. Because some of you are going through something that's kind of hard, and it's not that hard to have hope through something that's kind of hard. Some of you are going through something that is significantly painful, and then maybe these words mean a little bit more, and they're maybe even a little bit harder to believe. Peter's writing to a group of people who are suffering because they identify themselves with Christ. And he's writing to them to say, you should actually be filled with joy and filled with hope in spite of your circumstances. I don't know if that rings true for you this morning, but it is true for us today as the followers of Jesus. We should be filled with joy and filled with hope regardless of what we're going through because we have This great hope that overrides all of our circumstances. That's what Peter's saying as a follower of Jesus. Even though for a little while you may have to endure some difficulty. And when I say for a little while, Peter says, I might mean the rest of your life here on earth. And when I see some difficulty, what I might mean is intense persecution for the rest of your life here on earth. But it's worth it. And here's... Here's why. What you endure now pales in comparison to what God has done, to what God is doing, and to what God will do. It's nothing compared to those things. That's what Peter's saying, and he's saying, I'm not trivializing what you're going through. I know it's hard. It just pales in comparison to what you stand to gain as a follower of Jesus. So he says, be filled with hope. And be filled with joy, and we think, sure, no problem. 
No problem. How do we do that? How do we do that? Peter's given us all kinds of examples over the last number of weeks. Specifically, he's given examples of what it looks like to live like Jesus. He says, living like Jesus among those who don't believe looks like you submit yourself to God. You submit yourself to his authority. And here's what that looks like. That means you submit yourself to the authority of the government, even the bad ones. That means you servants, you submit yourselves to your masters, even the unjust ones. Wives, that means you submit yourself to your husbands, even the unbelieving ones. Husband, that, that looks like you follow God's calling for your marriage to be honoring to your wife, not because she's submitted to you, but because you're submitted to God. He's given us all these very specific examples. And then this morning, he's going to speak to everybody, whether, this, whether any of those specific examples apply to you or not. He's going to say, everybody, this is what I want your life to look like as a follower of Jesus. If you have your Bible this morning, would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. If you don't have your Bible this morning, we brought some for you on the seats around you. You can find them. And you're welcome to use that, and you're welcome to take it with you as our gift to you this morning if you'd like it. If you're using our Bible, we're on page 1015 this morning, way at the back of your Bible in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to give you a minute to get there because it's hard to find unless you have it bookmarked during this series. I want to tell you a story that I hope will be helpful this morning. If not, I think it's funny. <clears throat> When we were first married, um, Krista and I had a lot of friends that, that started families much earlier than we did, and so when we would hang out with them, we would just kind of watch them parent, um, not for any particular reason other than it was entertaining to us. And so in the last 15 or so years, there, there is one specific parenting example that stands out to me that I remember to this day. We were visiting some friends. We'd had dinner there. We were playing a board game, and um, their son came downstairs. Now, we couldn't see him. He's supposed to be in bed. He was about four years old. We couldn't see him. None of us could, but we could hear him walking down the stairs. And so his dad says, Andrew, that's not his real name, by the way. I've changed his name to protect him, and we'll see if I can remember his made-up name through the whole story or not. He says, Andrew, you're supposed to be in bed. Go back to bed. And Andrew stops. He says, well, what are you guys doing? We're playing a board game. Well, can I come and play with you? Kind of cute, right? No, Andrew, it's, it's past your bedtime. Please go back upstairs and go to bed. Pretty cute so far. And then he says, I'm just going to come down and play with you guys. And his dad says, no, you can't do that. It's bedtime. Please go back upstairs. Now remember, we can't see. We can only hear. <clears throat> and Andrew says, what will happen if I come down there? <laughs> now his parents by now are a little perplexed and clearly a little bit embarrassed and not sure what to do. So his mom says, we'll take away your new crayons. Now there's a long pause. And he says, okay, I'm coming down. <clears throat> now his dad, like in a last-ditch effort, says, and no TV for a week. And the footsteps stop. And we hear this sigh. 
And he trudges back upstairs and goes to bed. <laughs> now, to Krista and I, this was hilarious. I mean, we just thought this was like the funniest thing. But here's why I remember it, why I remember the story. Because the dad looks at me after his son goes back to bed, and he says, do you remember growing up being afraid of your dad? I said, yeah. He said, just like whatever your dad said, you just did it because you were afraid of him. Not because our dads ever did anything really heinous to us, right? We just have this healthy fear of authority or healthy fear, especially of our fathers. We just did what they said. It was like you had to obey them or else. But he said, my son at four years old, it's like he's figured out, what can I really do to him? (laughs) Like, or else what? What are you going to do to me? And it was like at four years old, he had already figured out like the two most important questions. His mind was kind of processing what can he do to me and what can he offer me, right? What can my dad really do to me and what do I stand to gain by aligning myself with him, okay? That's kind of the process that's going on in his head. That's kind of where Peter's going this morning. It's kind of where Peter's going in the book of 1 Peter, sort of. The question is, who do you fear and where is your hope? Who do you fear and where is your hope? In the context of our story, of Andrew's story, I should say, it's what can God do to me (laughs) and what do I stand to gain by aligning myself with him? What does it gain me to be aligned with God? And Peter concludes, we are highly incentivized to fear God and to hope in God. That's kind of his conclusion this morning. Who do you fear? What can God actually do to me? Well, judgment comes to mind, right? God can do that. We understand that God is completely holy. We understand that God's wrath is directed at sin, and that's bad for us because the Bible tells us we're all sinners, so that means the wrath of God is directed at you and me because of our sin. And the penalty for sin is death, and we know that the penalty after that is eternal separation from God. So he can do that. That's one thing he can do. Now, if I'm a follower of Jesus, like the people in the letter that Peter is writing to, do I need to fear separation from God? No, I don't. I'm actually absolved from that fear. I no longer even have the fear of death. But God's mercy and his salvation doesn't change who God is So I still live my life here. I live my life in anticipation of being with him, but I certainly know that he is a holy God who will judge what I do. God is my judge, and he will judge my actions. What can God do for me? Well, salvation comes from the hand of God. That's pretty significant. He offers rescue. He offers eternal life with him. He offers an invitation to be a part of his family. He actually offers the only thing worth hoping in. You ever thought of that? God actually offers the only thing that's worth setting your hope on because no one else can offer anything that's comparable. No one else can offer anything that lasts. Everything apart from the salvation that comes from God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ ends in death and separation from God for eternity. You know that? Everything that I set my hope in, apart from the salvation that comes from God 
through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, ends in death and separation from God for eternity. That's pretty significant. So the question is, if you don't fear God, who do you fear? Or what do you fear? And if you don't hope in God, where's your hope? What can you hope in? Everything else is hopeless. That's what Peter says. So even though it's hard, we can fear God and we can hope in God because what alternative do we have? If we were to look at our passage this morning, you're going to see, and some of you have been reading ahead, you're going to see that it's filled with a call to the followers of Jesus to live like Jesus. That's the call. To do good. To be righteous. That's what it looks like to live in the fear of God. is to look like His Son. But our passage is also filled with references to suffering. That's the price of living a life that looks like Jesus. The price is suffering. So why am I going to follow Jesus if I know I'm going to suffer? Last week we asked the question, how do I live as a follower of Jesus among those who don't believe? That's the question Peter's been answering over the last couple of weeks. Here's what it looks like in relation to the government. Here's what it looks like for servants and masters. Here's what it looks like for husbands and wives. That's how you live like Jesus among those who don't believe. But when we start talking about suffering, that we're going to suffer for looking like Jesus, then the question becomes, why, not how? Why do I live like Jesus among those who don't believe? Why would I do that if I know I'm going to suffer for it? So let's find out. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 8, and we're actually going to finish the chapter, Lord willing, this morning. The first reason is because you'll be blessed. That's what Peter says. There's blessing in it for you. Verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. He says, finally, in conclusion to all the things that I've been telling you so far about what it looks like to live like Jesus, all of you, he says, regardless of whether my previous applications applied to you or not, everybody live like this. Have these things. And then he gives them a list. And look at this list. He says, have unity of mind. Be like-minded have a similar disposition, have unity together, be together. He's actually speaking to the believers. This is what it looks like to live together as followers of Jesus. So have unity of mind, he says, be together. He says, have sympathy, which is like unity of feeling. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way, but it's feeling the same or feeling for someone else. It's the fact of or the power of sharing the feelings of someone else. Most often that looks like compassion or commiseration, that we would commiserate in our sorrow or our suffering. So he says, have unity of mind, have unity of feeling. Feel for each other, commiserate. He says, have brotherly love. Have this profound affection for your fellow believers, this deep love for one another, like brothers, like family. He says, have a tender heart. A tender heart is one that's easily moved to sympathy or compassion. Are you sensing a theme here? And finally, he says, have a humble mind, a modest opinion of yourself. Put others before you. How is this helpful to them? 
given their current situation of suffering because they identify with Jesus. He says, Peter's saying, live like this with each other. Part of the blessing is the family of God, is that there are other believers to walk through life with. You're all suffering together for the same cause. So care for each other. Be careful with each other. Love each other deeply, profoundly. Sympathize. And there is strength and there is hope that actually comes from shared suffering. So God, part of his blessing is the family of God to walk through these things with. Verse 9 then points to how we respond to those outside of the fellowship believers, outside of the family of God. In verse 9, if I live with love and affection and sympathy for the followers of Jesus, how do I respond to those who don't believe? He says this, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Does this sound familiar? We've heard these words before recently. Look back at chapter 2, verse 23. It says this, When he was reviled, talking about Jesus, he did not revile in return, but, but he, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So what is Peter reminding them of? He's reminding them of the example of Jesus. And he's saying, live like Jesus. You already have an example to follow. You don't retaliate. But you go even beyond that. It's not just that I don't respond in like kind, but I actually return reviling with blessing. What does that mean? Not just that I'm gracious, but I have an active response. My disposition toward those who revile me, which is a pretty strong word, those who abuse me, is one of active prayer and intercession on their behalf. That's hard to do. When somebody attacks me or reviles me or abuses me, my response then is to bless them by actively interceding on their behalf. And here's the picture. Our desire as followers of Jesus is not for revenge, it's for repentance. We want them to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And part of that is how we respond as believers. He says, you were called to live like this. He says, for to this you were called in verse 9. That sounds familiar too. He's already said that. Chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. What is it that we're called to do? To do good. To live righteously even if it means we're going to suffer for it because that's the example we were given in Jesus. Peter keeps pointing to Jesus and pointing to Jesus and pointing to Jesus and says, just do that. Just live like him. He already set the example for us. So you'll be blessed by the fellow believers, the family of God, that God's given us to walk through these difficult things with. That's the joy of being part of the church. But the blessing seems to be broader than just you have someone to suffer with. That's not a super exciting blessing. It's helpful, but it's bigger than that. It actually continues into the next number of verses. But look at even what he says in verse 9. He says that you may obtain a blessing, that you may obtain the favor of God. Another way to translate that is that you may inherit a blessing. Does inheritance sound familiar? Peter recalling once again the precious inheritance that they stand to gain as the children of God. 
He's giving them a picture of the hope that's coming. And the blessing continues. But the first thing is you'll be blessed. Why do I live like Jesus among those who don't believe? Why should I do that if I'm going to suffer? Well, first, because there's blessing in it for you. The second thing is because it keeps you connected to God. Look with me in verse 10, starting there. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter says, live like Jesus. Live a life that's submitted to God. Live a life in the fear of the Lord. Why? Because it keeps you connected to him. Now, he's quoting from Psalm 34. Psalm 34 starts with, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And the verse that precedes the quote here says, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. The psalmist says, here's what it looks like to fear the Lord. And then he says what Peter just quoted right here. So Peter says, if you want to love life, if you want to see good days, then verse 10, you keep your tongue from evil and you keep your lips from speaking deceit. What is the context of that? Is that just don't lie? Sure, it would include that. But he's specifically talking about what am I saying about the Lord? He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Not untrue things about the Lord. I won't speak deceit or lies about God. His praise shall be in my mouth. And then verse 11, he says, I will turn from evil and do good. Hey, that's what Peter's calling them to do, right? To this you were called, to do good, to live righteously. So I turn from wrong and I do right. And I seek peace. I'm not looking to rebel from God. I'm not seeking dissension. I'm seeking a right relationship with God. So when I speak truth about God instead of lies, when I turn from evil and I do good, when I turn from rebellion and seek a right relationship with God, then what is that called? It's called repentance. It's called repentance. The psalmist says that's what it looks like to fear God, to live a life in continual repentance. I will praise you, Lord, and I will seek a right relationship with you, and I refuse to speak things that are untrue about you. I won't say those things. Instead, I'm going to praise you, and I, I refuse to live a life in rebellion to you. And what does the psalmist say? The result is... God sees me, and God hears me. I'm in relationship with him. I have a connection with him. I'm in communion with him. Why do I live as a follower of Jesus among those who don't believe? Because I will be blessed by the family of God and with the favor of God because I live a life that looks like Jesus. Why will I do that? It's because it keeps me connected to God, because living a life of continual repentance means that I'm constantly seeking Him and in communion with Him. Why do I live a life that looks like Jesus among those who don't believe if I'm going to suffer for it? Because it points to Jesus. That's the next thing he's going to say. Look with me in verse 13. He says, Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, 
you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is probably my, my favorite section of First Peter. Um, we could spend a whole morning, maybe a couple mornings on this. We don't have that kind of time, but maybe one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. We're talking about who we fear. Who do I fear? I fear God as a follower of Jesus. And that changes the way I live. That changes the way I live in the body of Christ. That means I'm going to be sympathetic, I'm going to be loving, I'm going to be humble. That's what Peter says that looks like. It also changes the way I live among those who don't believe. I return reviling with blessing. Right? That's how I live like Jesus. And as a result, two things happen. First, who hates that? Who hates that guy? Who hates somebody who lives like this? That's Peter's first point. Who hates somebody who's submitted to authority, who honors everybody, who's respectful, who's gracious when confronted or even abused and returns abuse with blessing? Like really, who hates that guy? The second thing is, if someone hates that, who cares? Who cares? Because God loves that. So who do you fear, them or God? Whose opinion matters to you, theirs or God's? He says, if they hate you for looking like Jesus, who cares? Because God loves it. And here's why. Because it looks like Jesus. So live in a way that honors him. And live in a way that points people to him. To the one who exchanged his righteousness for your unrighteousness. He's kind of a big deal. So it's okay that your life would look like his and point to him. God loves it because it looks like Jesus and people notice it because it looks like Jesus. Look with me at verse 15, my favorite part. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Typically, we look at this verse and we think, man, I gotta get ready. I got to prepare myself. I got to take a class in apologetics. I need to have a good response. I need to be able to argue the gospel. I better have a good answer for the questions that come up evolution versus intelligent design. Those are all good things. I'm not going to say you shouldn't be able to talk about those things and discuss them, but we really focus on be prepared to have a reason. I don't think that's what Peter's talking about. I don't think that's what he's talking about at all. Because the entire conversation has been about how we live. He says, live like you have hope. And when you live with hope, when you live with unimaginable hope that cannot be taken away from you, you are conspicuously hopeful. You stand out. And everyone's going to go, what's your deal? Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Do you see what the verse is saying? The verse assumes 
that people are asking you for an explanation of your life that's lived with conspicuous hope. You are living with such conspicuous hope that people say, why are you like that? How can you be like that? That's the testimony of Monty Williams, the basketball coach. That's his testimony, who loses his wife and stands up at the funeral and says, it's okay, Jesus has me. And I'm a little jealous of my wife because she's with him. What? And you see the guys on the broadcast in tears because they cannot believe that anyone can say what he's saying. And he just kept saying, it's okay, I have Jesus. It's okay, I have Jesus. That's conspicuous hope. That's where on earth did you get that kind of hope? Why do you live that way? So here's the question to us as the family of God. Are any of us living our life with that kind of hope? Are any of us living our lives with such conspicuous hope that people are just coming up to us and saying, how can you live that way? How can you be so hopeful? There's something different about you. And here's what I would say. If we can't say that, then we better start praying that the Holy Spirit would fill us with that kind of hope. Because that's the whole purpose of living our lives as followers of Jesus here and now. That we would point people to Jesus, that they would understand what we have and what they don't because of the grace and mercy of God. That we would live with conspicuous hope. So why do I live as a follower of Jesus among those who don't believe? Because I'll be blessed. Because God says, I'll pour out my favor on you and I've given you people to live life with that feel the same way, that'll love you and care for you. That's the whole point of life groups, by the way, for those of you who are in them. Just, can I just have some people who love Jesus to walk through life with me? Because this is hard. And the picture in scripture is that we would care for each other deeply because it's hard. Why do I live this way? Because it keeps me connected with God. Living in continual repentance keeps me pointed at him, keeps me in communion with him. And he's like, I see you, I hear you, I've got you, I'm here, I got your back. Why do I live this way? Because it points people to Jesus. As we live our lives with conspicuous hope, it points people to Jesus. Here's the last thing. Here's the hope piece. Why do I live as a follower of Jesus among those who don't believe? Because you win. Because in the end, you win. So what are we worried about? Verse 18, look with me at the end of the chapter here. Now this is a doozy, by the way. We could spend a whole Sunday on the end of this chapter, and we could spend a few. So bear with me. Starting in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Okay, so far so good. That's the gospel. We know that part. He exchanged his righteousness for our unrighteousness. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What? Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. What is he talking? Okay. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Okay, somehow we got to Noah. 
All right, it gets weirder. Hold on. Verse 21. Baptism, wow, that's a left turn. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. I cannot tell you how much of my week has been consumed by these verses. Martin Luther called this perhaps the most obscure passage in the New Testament. Martin Luther, so me with my two years of pastoral experience and basically no formal education, I should be able to clear it up for you the next four or five minutes, okay? There is a lot here. I want to give some helpful explanation and I want us to not lose the point of what Peter's actually saying. First, let's take it a piece at a time. Peter's going to point us to, guess who? Jesus. Again, he does it all the time. He says, Jesus suffered And remember, when we talk about suffering for looking like Jesus, remember that Jesus suffered and remember why he did it. He did it for you. He did it to exchange his righteousness for your unrighteousness. To trade places with you so that he could put your sin to death and so he could bring us to God. Because God's holy. He can't be with the unrighteous, which is us. So Jesus said, here, have my righteousness. Then I can bring you to my dad. And you can be with us. Really cool. That's the gospel in a nutshell. So Jesus died to make that happen. Says he died in the flesh. He died in our place. But he was made alive in the spirit and proclaimed victory over the spirits in prison. What on earth does that mean? Okay, now here's here's where we can go a little bit sideways. Who are these spirits who didn't obey in the time of Noah? What does it mean Why is Peter talking about it? Let me try to capture this briefly for you because there are actually a lot of really smart people who disagree on exactly what he means when he says this. Let me tell you what I believe it means. Let me tell you what I think everyone believes the point is, okay? In Genesis chapter six, we have this really creepy reference to angels in the time of Noah who have disobeyed God who have fallen, okay? And these are the disobedient spirits that Peter is referencing here. I won't go into the details of the story, but you can read Genesis chapter six if you want to, okay? These fallen angels are the disobedient spirits. Then fast forward to Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the culmination of God's plan of salvation, his very patient plan to redeem his people, to buy them back and to conquer death. So Jesus then proclaims victory over sin and death and Satan and these fallen angels who disobeyed him in the time of Noah. And Peter tells us at the end of this chapter that Jesus is now in heaven at the right hand of God with everything, including angels, subject to him. Complete Victory, complete and total victory through the cross. You win. Big picture. Now, he says, in the same way that Noah was rescued from a sea of unrighteousness, if you remember the story of Noah and you remember how his contemporaries were described, that their thoughts were only evil all the time, 
which is not how you want to be written down in the Bible, by the way. Just like Noah and eight, eight people total were saved in the time of Noah out of a sea of unrighteousness, saved through water. He says, in the same way, we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. In the same way, you're saved through water. Now, if we're not careful, we can read this to say, baptism saves you. But we know that that's not true because we know from all of Scripture that we're saved through faith in Jesus Christ. We remember that, right? It's not the act of baptism that saves. It's not getting wet. It's not getting washed off. In fact, Peter says the same thing. Peter says it's not the removal of dirt from the body, but the declaration of faith in Jesus. That's what he says, an appeal to God for a good conscience through Jesus Christ. Baptism is the act of faith. Some of us would say, oh, I came to faith. I prayed for salvation. Does a prayer save you? No, faith saves you. The prayer is the act of placing my faith in Jesus Christ. In the same way, baptism is the, baptism is the act of placing my faith in Jesus Christ. In the same way that Noah and eight people were saved through water, you're saved through water. God's salvation, again, but for us. Peter concludes this whole passage on submission to God's authority and living in fear of him by saying, just like Jesus, even through suffering, we have victory. That's the point. Even through suffering, we have victory because of Jesus. We see it clearly in the example of Christ. Jesus suffered, he died, he proclaimed victory over those who disobeyed, and then he was exalted to the right hand of God. In the same way, he says, that's true of you. You will suffer like Jesus, and you have to wait patiently through that suffering to be with him, to be exalted and share in the glory of God. And by the way, he says, those who revile you in the meantime will be put to shame, just as those spirits that Christ proclaimed victory over after his resurrection were. I hope that that's helpful. Here's the point. You win. You win as a follower of Jesus. And the suffering still leads to victory, just like it did for Jesus. So who do I fear? Where is my hope? Well, where else can it be? (laughs) Who else can I fear? And what else will I put my hope in? Clearly, we're meant to fear God. And clearly, our hope is meant to be in the salvation that he offers Because there's no alternative that's satisfying. There's nowhere else to hope. And God is deserving of both my fear and my hope. I live in reverent fear of God, knowing that he's completely trustworthy. How do I know that I can trust God? Because he gave me his son. That's the value that he placed on my life. He said, you're worth Jesus to me. That's the price I'm willing to pay for you, so I know I can trust him. If he wouldn't withhold his son from me, what else will he withhold? And I can live with hope because I have an eternity ahead of me as an adopted son or daughter of the greatest, wealthiest, worthiest king of all time. And that's not a bad position to be in. So the question for us is, what are we so worried about? 
And I say that to you this morning, and I'm saying it to me. What are we worried about? Because we're all worried about something. We're all struggling. And why? We should be filled with joy and hope. We get to be with him. We belong to God. Well, I'm just afraid that no, no, I only fear God. Well, I was just hoping that no, I only hope in God. All right, let me think of a way to say it without using the words fear or hope. I'm struggling because it's hard. Yeah, that's, that's legitimate. That's legitimate. It is hard. And we have each other, and that helps that we can walk through this together. But it is hard. It was hard for Jesus too, by the way. Really hard for him. And we have the hope of this complete victory in the future. The hope of sharing in the glory of God with him in the future. And and that's helpful too. Here's the thing. If it's really hard, you can ask him to make it easier. And he might. He's done it before. Jesus asked him to make it easier. Do you remember? God said no that time. But I think it's okay for us to ask God to make it easier if we're really struggling. If we ask the way Jesus asked. Do you remember Jesus in the garden? Saying, Lord, please take this away from me, but not my will, but your will. It's okay to ask. It's okay to ask for relief from suffering. It doesn't mean that God will grant it, and it doesn't mean it's hopeless. For the followers of Jesus, there's always hope because our future is secure and because God is great, and he's worthy of putting our trust in. But we can always ask him to make it easier. So we live with great hope and we live with great joy. Here's the last thing that I'll say that I think is important for us to hear as the church. We live with great hope and we live with great joy and we have to hold each other accountable to that. And we live with great heartache for those who don't know how much God loves them. And as the church, we have to be heartbroken for those that don't know Jesus. Here's how Paul said it in Romans chapter nine. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. Paul says, the Holy Spirit is my witness. I am crushed with grief for those that don't know Jesus. And I would actually trade places with them I would be cut off from Christ if it meant that they could be with him. That's Paul's heart for the lost. So I would just ask us as the church, as the followers of Jesus, we can have hope, we can have joy, and we have to hold each other accountable to living that way. But we're going to walk out of this place today, and we are going to be surrounded by people who don't know him. There are people who live next door to us that don't know the love of Christ. There are people who live in our homes. There are people that coach our kids' teams. There are people at your school, people at your work that don't know how desperately God loves them. And how can that be that anybody within our sphere of influence wouldn't know? They have to know so that they can live with hope and joy like us. So our lives have to bear testimony to the hope and joy that we have. So who will we pray for? Who will we pray for and say, do you know my Lord and Savior? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are so, so good to us.
Lord, I'm so convicted that so often I do not live with joy or hope because I just don't see the big picture, but we're so grateful that in you we have victory, complete and total victory. Help us to live like that's true. Help us to live with conspicuous hope that speaks volumes to those around us that don't know you. Lord, we want to be used to point people to Jesus. Like Monty Williams, I just praise you, Lord, for that testimony. What an amazing thing to be able to say. Would you use that in a powerful way? And would you use us in a powerful way to tell true things about you? We pray this in your name. Amen.